0: The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. It's a tradition unlike any other. No, it's not the Masters, it's Dan doing a Thursday podcast. With the baby asleep, one room over. So, don't worry. We will get excited. We will get calm. But we're going to do all of it at a much more reasonable volume so that you actually get a show today. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Vespris, and this is a HoopBall presentation. It's hoop-ball.com. That's the website. You can go to at hoopballfantasy.com on Twitter. You can follow me at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hope everybody has been spending their time with our free new podcasts. That's F-R-E-E. Although I guess it's also kind of three. Three and free right now. Uh and a half. Because one isn't new, but it's has a, a very new feel. The pods I'm speaking of, of course, are the All Rookie Podcast with William Harris. Punt intended, a fantasy NBA dynasty show. That's with Rhett Bauer and Travis Fuller. The third new show, which we debuted at the beginning of this week, is Fantasy NFL Today with our buddy Anthony Germain. And then the half one, because again, it's not new, is Ball Heat. Got some brand new hosts luke and ben so make sure to check that out and believe it or not we actually have more podcast stuff in the wings a reboot on the box score breakdown is coming up in the not too distant future we may also have another team show that's probably a little bit further down the line that one i'm guessing more towards august maybe september but still i am just so thrilled that you guys get all this new awesome stuff from our guys here at hoop ball please do check all that out uh particularly if you're about to get into the football side of things. Go check out Fantasy NFL today. Enjoy it. Report back to me. Say, Dan, you were right. You may not have any idea what's going on in the NFL, but you know a good podcast when you hear one. And Anthony's got himself a good podcast when I heard one. Today's show, you know, I had planned to spend a bunch of time on today's podcast talking about Milwaukee Phoenix in the finals, and then we ended up kind of doing that on yesterday's show. But just a quick refresher Suns are favored by five in game two. They lead this series one game to none. Total of 220 and a half. As we looked back at game one, the main things that jumped out that were somewhat anomalous, I'm actually not sure. I think that's a word. I think anomalous is something that is of an anomaly, right? I'm using that right. Yeah. The things that were anomalous in game one, The Suns going 25 of 26 at the free-throw line. In fact, I think they made their first 24. Or did they make their first 25 and then miss the last one? In any event, they set a finals record for consecutive free-throws made to start a finals game. That's probably not going to happen again, whoever it might be. And and admittedly, the Suns are a good free-throw shooting team. So if it's going to happen to somebody, that's a team where you're like, okay, yeah, I guess that was going to happen at some point in here. But DeAndre Ayton going 6 of 6. Booker, 10 of 10. Chris Paul, he never misses a free throw, but Cam Johnson, 2 of 2. Mikael Bridges, 2-2. Two, two. And then Crowder was the jag who missed one He had for his only point of the game. Still, that's not the point of all this. The point is, that was anomalous. That's probably not going to happen again. Also anomalous. Giannis taking 12 of the Bucks only 16 free throws. We saw the Suns, on the whole, actually got out-free-throwed in their previous series with the Clippers, and the Clippers are a pretty good team at getting to the foul line, but one would have to assume that Milwaukee will see the free-throw line a little bit more. They only took 16 in the entire ballgame. Bucks shot the three-ball relatively well, or certainly Middleton and Brooke Lopez shot the the three-ball relatively well in that first ballgame. Phoenix, actually, by and large, weren't amazing at the offensive end, which is weird to say because they scored 118 points, but they did it heavily by not turning the ball over, by being so outstanding at the free throw line. And then, you know, 465 half, 47% from the field is decent, but it's not blowing anyone away. They were just very efficient. They utilized their possessions appropriately, and so that's why they kind of went up and over their expected total in this game, which was around 110. Over on the Bucs' side, believe it or not, they went under their expected total, but not by all that much because they hit 16 three-pointers. So if they come back there again tonight and hit their three-pointers and shoot about the same clip from the field, all they have to do is get to the free-throw line a couple more times, maybe hope the Suns miss, I don't know, three or four of their foul shots, and you've got yourself a really tight ball game. So I lean to the Bucks, although my hesitation... Because I've given you a whole bunch of reasons to like Milwaukee here in Game 2. My hesitation is that I still don't believe Giannis is at full strength. And when he's not at full strength, as is the case for most players in the NBA, if they try to play when they're a little bit dinged up, they can, they can help their team in certain ways. I mean, look, Milwaukee's sort of built around Giannis, so having him out there is useful just from a familiarity standpoint. But he's not going to be quite the same guy on defense. He's not going to have maybe the same explosion. He only took 11 shots in that first game. Yes, 12 free throws, so if you want to call that another six field goal attempts, that's still way behind Chris Middleton for the team lead. And I would assume that some of that is just because he isn't 100%. He tried. He played 35 minutes. I mean, you gotta give the got to give the kid a ton of credit for playing through what looked to be a pretty severe injury, suffered a, like basically a week ago. A little more than that now, I think. In any event, Milwaukee catching five is a pretty good number. Suns are going to probably win this basketball game. I still have Phoenix winning, but I have it ultra tight. And when you have a really tight ball game, if you can get two to three possessions with one team, you probably lean that direction. Don't be surprised, though, if the Bucks are down like three with 45 seconds to go and you're thinking, oh my God, they're going to foul their way right out of this cover and you're going to need somebody to hit a three-pointer. Someone on the Bucks is going to need to hit a three-pointer in the last 30 seconds for them to cover. They're going to have like two or three shots at it. Odds are pretty good that someone will make one of those three tries. Mark my words, that's that's how I'm predicting this game goes down. If there was a prop bet on Bucks trail by three under a minute to go, we need somebody to hit a three-pointer slash score in some way to keep us in the money on this lean I would I would lay that prop bet. <laughs> Such a thing doth not exist, but uh, that's that's how I feel this game shakes out. I you guys know I lean Phoenix pretty hard in game one. I also thought that game was gonna go under and it, it, it almost right on the posted total. This one I think the total's pretty right. I would lean to the over once again because I think Milwaukee does a better job offensively, but I also we talked about some of those anomalous things that went on, and I think they may just counterbalance one another. So I, I think the total's pretty accurate. 220 is uh, pretty tight to the number I have in terms of pace of play. When this game, when this series continues, we're probably going to have some leverage on an under. I don't think it's in this ballgame yet. I guess it's conceivable it is. And maybe this is the start of an under trend for this series. But I, I think we may be a game out from being able to exploit an under if we can watch. The speed of this basketball game. The game should, if it's really close, slow down a little bit. So that's why I would ever so slightly into the under on the total. I mean, it's it's a tough one. It's to me, it's right on the money, uh, and the bucks, which is a weird correlated parlay because you figure if the bucks are covering, then they're scoring with Phoenix. But I actually don't think that that's the case. I think if the bucks are covering, it's because Phoenix is a little bit worse in a few of those areas we had talked about already. But the main point of today's podcast, which, again, is going to be a little bit more brief because I want to make sure we get through it before my one-year-old wakes up. This is the one window we've got. We've got to make the, the best use of it possible, is a trip to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Our Northwest Division exploration. We really found a lot, I think, with the Portland Trailblazers, a team that, for whatever reason, despite... Guys generally achieving, not necessarily overachieving at times. Well, Yusuf Nurkic was a pretty big underachiever. But Dame achieved, McCollum achieved when he was healthy enough to do it. Had that one big injury, which is pretty rare for him, by the way. Rocco achieved. Norman Powell achieved enough. He wasn't great. Then we ventured on yesterday's show to Minnesota, where I thought, Because everybody achieved last year, and younger players, guys that have this track record, I think we may see some underachieving this coming season, at least in terms of expectations. I don't know that necessarily the players are going to be bad. In fact, I think the the Wolves are going to be kind of an upstart team. They're going to be pushing with some of those other teams fighting for the eighth seed. I don't think they ultimately make the playoffs, but I do think they finally play a little bit better. As a team, individually stats are going to suffer now we go to the land of the unknown the oklahoma city thunder a very young team with very little committed and already a trade under their belt question of course of who actually is still there on opening day next season, well, we can handicap this team based on who's there right now. Kemba Walker is... uh, Wait, I sure thought that he had another year on his deal. Doesn't he have another year on his deal? Something's all discombobulated right now. Uh, Let me make sure that I've got Kemba's contract properly lined out. He's got plenty of time left on his deal, but for whatever reason, basketball reference where... I like to have a tab open for that as we're going through some of these shows. They have him listed as as zero. Uh, here we go. Now we've got the correct number. Thank you, alternate website. Yeah, Kemba's due $36 million this coming season, and he has a player option for 38 the year after that. So he's going to be a pretty tough customer to move. We've said that about some other guys in Oklahoma City that they have then ultimately moved, figuring out ways to either shed salary or Bring on contracts and actually taking salary to do uh to acquire picks in that way. Uh, Al Horford's contract is smaller. He's gone. He's now with the Celtics. He's making twenty seven and then twenty seven million again each of the next two seasons. Uh, Oklahoma City also sent Moses Brown out in that deal, and what that does from the Thunder side of things is it really does open things up in the front court. Let's go through some of the players on the Thunder from this year and try to bring that over into next season. The first thing I want to mention is that the Thunder were one of the most egregious tank teams in the NBA. Shea Gilgis-Alexander was playing too well, so they just plantar fasciitis him right out for the rest of the season. Al Horford, you knew that tank was coming. They shut him down super early in the year. So they took out their two guys that were carrying the load. Shea was top 50 on a per-game basis. Horford was top 60 on a per-game basis prior to going down. He was actually even better than that for a while. Uh, But Horford is now gone, so we don't have to worry about that. Shea at top 50 was notable because he was a guy that was getting drafted in the top 25 under the assumption that his massive lift in usage was going to translate to a massive boost in fantasy value. As it turned out, He was one of those weird test cases whose big bump in usage, and it wasn't, I would argue, not even as big as we expected, but it was substantially not quite as large, say, as the jump from going from L.A. to Oklahoma City, but he did add another 10% shots taken, another 30% free throws, although he's sort of a net neutral free throw shooter there. Field goal percent still good. Actually added three pointers to his arsenal. Rebounds went down season over season. Assists went way up. Scoring went up. Steals came down. Turnovers went up. It's a really weird. I mean, look, let, look, Like the Shea Gilgis Alexander ranking stuff is super weird because he was number fifty three last season prior to the COVID shutdown, at nineteen six and three, and then he was fifty this year, at whatever numbers I just said, 24, 5, and 6. The steals diminishing, the turnovers going up, actually almost perfectly counterbalanced the increase in scoring and assists from Shea. I would love it. If his free throw percent could even click up by like 1% or 2%, that would actually be a really big deal for his stuff. Here's the issue with the Thunder. They're not going to magically get really good from last year to this year. And it's concerning because this is the last season on Shea's current deal. He's said to make five and a half million dollars, and you know they're going to offer him a massive extension, but he's going to have to commit to seeing this rebuild through. And I guess he kind of, ha- I mean, he's, he's still super young, but the Thunder, unless they trade a ton of picks or a ton of young players, in a package deal to pick up a proven veteran, a Shea Gilgis-Alexander-Kemba-Walker-led team is still going to be really bad. Not tank bad, the way they were at the end of the season when they shut down their veterans, but not a playoff team, and uh, effectively a rebuild team. So what does that mean? Well, number one, there's... A ton of risk attached to Kemba Walker. Almost no chance he plays in back-to-backs this year. Thunder will try to rehabilitate him the way they did or continue to do. Did it with Chris Paul. Did it with Al Horford. With Paul, he got him to the playoffs, so they didn't shut him down. With Horford, they were, frankly, too close to the playoffs with no chance of making any noise whatsoever, so they wisely pulled the plug early. That type of thing could very easily happen again this coming season. I think you probably see more games out of Shea. I don't think that there really just isn't a player in the NBA who wants to play two half seasons in a row in a rebuild. These guys want to play. It's upsetting. He wants to fight for something. So it's going to be a really tough sell to say, oh, Shea, by the way, like if you have an agging injury, let us know because we'll pull the plug on you in... in uh, late February, early March this coming season. I don't think that's going to happen. He will get rest days. He will sit, but you're probably going to see more like 62 to 65 games from Shea this coming season as opposed to half season of like 41. And then with Kemba, I'm very concerned that he plays like 45 games this coming year. He probably will have a great per-game marker so let's figure out what his ADP is going to be. And in a Roto League, if you can get him in like the seventh round or something like that, hell yeah, go for it. He's not going to hit his totals mark, but at least when they pull the plug on him, you can drop him. So take your half season of Kemba going bananas. They'll sit him, try to move him. Maybe they just shut him down. Maybe they let him play a game here or there. Head to head, no, no way. So then we turn our attention. Those are the the notables the proven names on this team the rest of the names on this thunder is a grab bag of who's who's (laughs) a grab bag of actually i should rephrase that it's a grab bag of who so moses brown is gone he was someone we had been tracking last year uh darius Baisley is much more suitable suited for points leagues same story with lou dort Because neither one of those guys can shoot the ball. They both shot sub-40%, and they both shot sub-75% at the free-throw line. So as great as Lou Dort looked in those games where he was taking 30 shots by himself, his fantasy game doesn't translate even in a full body of work. Those guys played 30 minutes a game this year, and neither one of them cracked the top 200. Who has a shot on this Thunder team? Who has fantasy game? And the answer is nobody. It's unbelievably upsetting because Theo Maladon averaged 27 minutes a game and he was outside the top 300. Alexei Pokushevsky was top 340, number 336 in 24 minutes a game. I want to amend what I'm about to say. You guys need to sit through this entire discussion. Right now, that's an important distinction. Right now, none of the Thunder Young players have fantasy game. We talked about them a lot at the end of last year because they had a five-game playoff week, but Ty Jerome, uh, Isaiah Roby, Lou Dort, Darius Baisley, Svee Mikhailiuk, Theo Maladon, and even Poku, none of those dudes had sustained fantasy value, basically regardless of how many minutes they were playing. In fact, over the Thunders' last 20 games of the season, they didn't have a player inside the top 120. Nobody. No one. And if you're saying, Dan, did a bunch of guys miss time in there? The answer is, yeah, it didn't matter. Darius Baisley played 32 minutes a game over that stretch. He was number 356. Poku played 25 minutes a game over that stretch. He was number 397. Ty Jerome, 170. Kenny Hustle, 156. And traded Moses Brown was the best of the bunch at 124. Not one player on the Thunder the last 20 games of the year was inside the top 100. None. Shea and Kemba will be, and we'll have to assess where they're getting drafted. I would venture to guess that Shea is going to be a bit of a post-type guy, although we have to once again... Understand that there will be rest days and he's going to be a difficult sell in a head to head league. I like Kemba. I like Shea in Roto, provided the price is right. Like, if you can get Shea in the fifth round, which I doubt, he probably won't fall that far. If he falls to the fifth round, I would take him and just accept that he's going to play about 62 games this year. Kemba, it's going to have to be deeper than that. Probably the seventh round. Like, I'm going to need to draft him in the 70s or later because he's not going to hit that mark by totals but you might get a Kemba that's rocking top 45 per game numbers for half the year, and then you just have to fill in the rest. So those guys have some argument to be roto-relevant, not head-to-head. The head-to-head relevant guys are the young dudes, and and the Thunder will end up with someone in the draft that perhaps we need to do a, a, a refresh on that stuff. There is basically no scenario where in a category league... I'm drafting anyone on the Thunder not named Shea, Kemba, and maybe Pokushevsky. That's the question mark for me. Alexei Pokushevsky, we've seen the outlines of someone who has fixable fantasy deficiencies. Roll with me on this for a second. 24 minutes a game this last year. He took nine shots a game, which actually isn't all that insane. I'd like to see that usage come up a little bit. And down the stretch, he was a little bit higher than that. Four and a half of those nine shots were from downtown, where he shot 28%. That's supposed to be uh, a strength of his. He didn't get to the free throw line, so the fact that he shot 74% there sort of doesn't matter, good or bad. Eight points, five rebounds, and a block in 24 minutes a game. I think there's a little bit of a miscon- misconception that Pokushevsky is a dynamite shot blocker. He's a decent one, but he's seven feet, probably about a buck 90 soaking wet. He's listed at 208, and if that's true, that's after like six meals and a whole bunch of amodium AD to make sure everything's saving up. Uh, he's very interesting. He's very interesting because he shoots the three, because he can block some shots, because he can rebound a little bit. And on the on the positive side for Poku, the trade of both Al Horford and Moses Brown moves everybody up a slot on the roster. Now, I know Horford was out for the second half of the year, so he sort of wasn't a factor even when Poku was not playing very well. But they were rocking Moses Brown, Isaiah Roby, and then Pokushevsky was playing small forward, which... That's a, a brutal decision. It moves him away from the bucket. So his defensive strength, shot blocking ability, negated because he's just chasing people all the time. Uh, rebounding, negated because he's moving farther from the bucket. Yes, he's not, he's not going to be the center still. That'll probably be Roby as the roster is currently constructed Is he's still on the roster. Mike Muscala would have seen some time. So would Tony Bradley, but those guys actually, their contracts expired. You might see the Thunder pick up a veteran center to log minutes, but I guess you're probably looking at Isaiah Roby as the starting center on this team. And if your first thought was, hey, wait a minute, does that have any legs? The answer is, meh. Roby and Pokashevsky are probably equally distant from fantasy value. Not necessarily that there's no way they get there, but that there's a space between each of them and being fantasy relevant, and that space is about the same distance for both guys. Isaiah Roby is a big man who can dribble. He can dribble, he gets steals more than he gets blocks, he's a better rebounder on the whole than Pokushevsky because he's just bigger, 230-pounder, shorter but stronger, doesn't shoot the three ball, so field goal percent is probably going to be better, Generally. And so that, that's your trade-off between those two big men. And I guess they could alternate at from time to time, but just given Roby's strength advantage, he's probably your starting center. You can go through the game log on these guys and try to figure out nights where they were fantasy relevant and what it took to get there. With Roby, it took about 30 minutes a game. The games where he broke 30 minutes, he was sniffing fantasy value. It was still a, a very Wendell Carter Jr.-esque line in his 30 minutes, and with Pokaszewski, if you want to kind of play the same game, it I don't know that it was even necessarily a, a minutes-per-game thing that needed to happen. It was just like the stars needed to align and he needed to get some blocked shots. He had a game on April the 18th where he blocked six shots. He had a 4 by 5 8.7 boards, five assists, six blocks. But then between that game and the end of the year, he only blocked a shot in two of his remaining games. I think there was 11 the rest of the way. He didn't get a block in the other 9. So there's all this hubbub. And for Poku, I mean there were stretches in there. There was uh March 22nd through April 7th he actually played over 30 minutes in each of those ball games and he was he was fantasy relevant in those, but you can see just from the the number of minutes that it took to get there how far we needed to get. That, by the way, was with Moses Brown still active. Poku was the uh, small forward in those games, and he was just taking a ton of shots. Baisley and Dort were both out for those, in addition to Shea and Al Horford, who's gone. We can try to do these mental gymnastics and figure out who's going to actually see enough playing time, and certainly with Poku, that's a guy that they want to force-feed minutes. But let's just guess at what the Thunder minute situation might look like this coming year, and draw a conclusion from it. Shea's going to play starters minutes. Dort and Baisley are going to play starters minutes, and those guys are probably your power forward and your shooting guard or small forward. There isn't a clear center, but if it's Roby, he's probably going to play maybe just slightly sub-starters minutes, and then you could play Basley or Pokaszewski there. So those three guys are logging most of the front court minutes with Dort mixed in there, and then among the other guards, you've got Ty Jerome, you've got the Omalidone that pushes Gilgis-Alexander up to the shooting guard spot, and that pushes Dort up to the small forward spot, and so on and so forth. So you can see how it becomes a little bit of a squeeze with four guys you want to get decent minutes to, and then whatever other, you know, I, I don't. whatever guys are coming out of the woodwork here, if, if they retain Kenrich Williams or whoever, is there enough time? And more importantly, is there enough usage for pokoshevsky to get up and over that hurdle? I think the answer with Isaiah Roby is no. I don't think there's enough usage, and I don't think there's enough minutes. With Pokashevsky, it's going to be close, And because he does have that ability, if he gets confident and stronger, he's worth a very late flyer. He's probably going to get drafted too early and might be a guy who picks up steam as the season goes on. I just can't advocate grabbing him if there's someone obviously useful still out there on your draft day. Like, I'm looking at, like, the eighth round results on one of my drafts, and that's where things start to get a little bit goofy. Seventh round, there's still plenty of guys left. Seventh round this last year, guys that actually had good per game seasons. They were still like uh, pretty close to half the round. Eighth round, not many. Jeremy Grant, Rashawn Holmes, Mike Conley. Oh, the Julius Randle went in that mix. So, I guess there, so there are a few. And then by the ninth round, it's kind of crapshoot territory. Nurlands, Norman Powell, those guys ended up having good. Seasons, they went in the ninth round. bogged on once he was healthy. But that's a juncture. And that's before you get to pick 100, where you could actually go take a guy like Pokoshevsky, and if he completely flames out, not a huge deal. Just make sure you're not passing over someone, you know, like this year, if you passed over Norman Powell to go take a shot with somebody else, uh, on a guy that you thought was going to get more minutes. Opportunity. And that's where you're at with the Thunder. It's a real mixed bag. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is a guy where I I, I truly have no idea where he's going to go. Same story with Kemba Walker. I'm guessing he'll go relatively late. I don't don't think analysts are going to be pushing him because we all know he's going to get rest days. But if you're in a nine-cat roto league, there's an opportunity there. If he falls, that you could plug him in for the 40-some-odd games you get out of him and just sort of enjoy him trying to rehabilitate his value outside of Boston. Heard that before? (laughs) don't worry we'll get to al horford when we break down the celtics that'll be a fun one i'll give you a hint the crusty old vet will probably be on the dan vesper's old man squad just saying i know time lords out there i know i know uh they need a veteran center who's in the right place defensively There was someone who, oh man, I wish I could find the tweet on the fly and I can't and I also don't have the time to go look it up because the baby's going to wake up. But there was a tweet I saw flash by talking about shot blocking as something that's really, really fun and cool to have in small bits. But if you have a ton of it, it means that there's other stuff wrong. And for the Time Lord, a lot of that other stuff was like, oh, he's you know, chasing somebody. He's in the wrong place on defense. So if you're wondering, is he gonna lose playing time to Al Horford, the answer is almost definitely yes. Almost definitely yes. But we're not there yet. That's the uh Boston situation. We're on the Oklahoma City side. And uh the Thunder are interesting because of the I well, first of all, I don't think Shea falls enough to be a draft day value. I think Kemba does in a games cap roto format, and then I think the rest of these guys you're If you're taking a shot on Pokushevsky, you're certainly not doing it before 95, and it's probably too damn soon to do it there too. But let's see where they're going. ADP is going to make a really big deal because I don't have the first foggy bleeping clue where Shea and Kemba and Poku are going to be going this year. I think Pokushevsky probably ends up getting pushed off the board a little bit. Certainly if our buddy Jonas has anything to do about it, he will. <laughs> well, don't worry. We'll talk to Jonas before the season starts. We'll get his sleeper, and I can pretty much tell you who it's going to be already. <laughs> it's an upside play. I, I, like, we need to probably go a little bit farther on this one, and hopefully we have two or three more minutes before uh, baby Theodore is up. But the reason... I think in seasons past, you guys would probably have expected me to say a hard no on every one of these guys, but the reason I'm not a hard no on Poku, the reason it's more of a soft no is because we've seen those flashes and he's not going to shoot 34 percent for a season again. This is a seven footer we're talking about who yes takes a crap ton of his shots from the perimeter, but sorry that's the that was 34 uh, percent over the last whatever it was, three weeks. No, that was for the season also. it's 34%. He's it pretty consistently in the low 30s. That will fix itself. Playing time will fix itself. And then the issue becomes, will Darius Baisley, Lou Dort, sacrifice some of their terrible shots to give Pokaszewski a probably equally terrible shot? I, I truly don't know. And then Kemba coming in is a higher usage guy also. So I still lean towards no, But then Kemba's going to get shut down. If Shea gets shut down, you see that ending again where Poku's playing. I just, I don't know. I don't see how he gets more than like 11 shots a game this year. That's not enough. He needs more than that. He needs to be able to rebound in the front court. He needs to be able to be near the rim to block shots on defense. I just don't see how the puzzle pieces fit for him to be a breakout And that's what you need to justify a pick in that territory. You need it to be a breakout guy. When I can already foresee having gone through even just the few teams we've talked about so far, there are going to be guys in the 80 and 90 range this year that have a better percentage at a breakout chance. But it's not a hard no. It's not. And we'll be on muscle watch during (laughs) uh, summer league and training camp also. Like, maybe he comes back at 235, and that's a pretty big deal, because then he can play center. I don't know. Gaining 40 pounds when you're—how old is he, like 17 and a half? That's not easy. I screwed up the order of things. I don't know why I went to Oklahoma City. I ended up—we're doing the uh, Northwest Division as, like, a hook. We're doing a hook instead of a question mark. I said we were going to do a question mark coming back to OKC to dot it. And instead, we're looping through Minnesota. We come all the way down through the plains. Now we're coming back into the Rockies. And tomorrow, we'll do the Nuggets. What's tomorrow, Friday? Yeah, Friday, we'll do the Nuggets. We'll loop back around to the Jazz first thing next week. Our Northwest Division Tour continues here on Fantasy NBA Today. Listen to all of our amazing new shows here at Ball. I'm Dan Vesperis. Baby didn't wake up. We all got a show in. We'll talk to you tomorrow. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.